Welcome to another episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. On this episode, we are joined by Joe Slack, and we talk about table presence. What makes a game have table presence? What games have great table presence? We talk about how all these things impact the experience one has of a board game and how that impacts marketing. And then finally, we talk about tips when playtesting to help people have a great experience with your games. So without further ado, let's get into this. Game begin. I used to be a marketer like you until I took an arrow to the knee. Well, welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. And on this episode, we are joined not by Andrew or Richard. They have gone far away. Andrew is uh, expecting another baby with his lovely wife. But we're joined by the game designer, course instructor, and board game extraordinaire. That is Joe Slack. Welcome, Joe. Oh, thanks so much, Sean. We also have the marvelous Jacob Cecil of filling, Crowdfunding Nodes. Filling in. I'm, uh, some of Andrew's brawn and all of Rick's baldness rolled into <laughs> one. So. <laughs> so on this episode, we're going to talk about table presence in the board game space, but I think particularly around marketing and how it impacts marketing. So Joe, I don't know if you want to just uh, introduce yourself to those who aren't familiar. You did join us in the distant past on episodes 63 and 64. I had to look that up <laughs> before we yep. started. So people can go back to that. We talk about relaunching a Kickstarter. So you're, you're no newbie when it comes to Kickstarters, but you've got an exciting project that you know, maybe tell people of what makes it unique and why you have decided to design it and promote it in the, the ways you're currently doing. For sure, yeah. So I'm a game designer, publisher, author, um, course instructor. I, I, I do as much as stuff as I can in the board game design world and sharing, sharing my knowledge and helping others as well. Uh, but my latest project is called Mayan Curse, and it's a puzzly adventure game where you have to um, match up uh, symbols, Mayan symbols, and slide slabs and try to make your way to the temple and get as much knowledge about an ancient Mayan city and get back before the boulders have rolled back and closed the exit and mock you in forever. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that we want to talk about is table presence. And one thing we often see, and I know Jacob, you could probably testify to this as well, is whenever we run ads for board games, we always have two types of assets. You have these highly professional, polished assets that are you know, sh super shiny and they look amazing. And then you have the other side of that where it's it's people on their iPhones or their Android phones taking snapshots of game night during a playtest session. And you'll be amazed by the amount of times that the low quality uh, iPhone snap of the game simply on the table with, with the presence and people around the table far outperforms the highly polished slick content not always but generally that has a, a better uh, it just resonates with people more is that something that you have um, experienced yourself joe um at different times yeah i have seen that i think people kind of get drawn to that natural look of people actually playing, uh, sitting down at a game, as opposed to something that's really, really polished and, and photoshopped and, and made to look absolutely perfect. So I've definitely seen that. And even in um, running ads leading up to my campaign for Mayan Curse, I tested a bunch of different images and actually even went to video at the end. And uh, I, I was first testing 
just the game box. That's what we had available when we started running the ads and we were still putting together kind of that Kickstarter main image. And then it did okay. And then, you know, as uh, I've heard you say, sometimes the ads start off really well and then the, the cost uh, per, per result or cost per lead uh, starts to go up over time. So I was really looking forward to trying some different images as th- things were coming in and our graphic designer put together this amazing image of the box and the game board, which is really well laid out and it really shows the table presence of it and put that up and it did better. It outperformed the, the box image. And, uh, but then, you know, it started to slip as well. And I was testing with different audiences and that type of thing. And then I decided to, uh, late in the game, test a video. So we recorded a video, f- uh, homemade kind of video for uh for mine curse and it was just showing um the the movement the sliding the the rotation of the temple and that kind of thing some really cool things that people really liked when they tried out the game when we were demoing it and play testing it and we just put together about it was about a 15 second clip with the narration um, from our voice actor uh, who did the the kickstarter video so it was just a, a small clip and it outperformed all the rest as well so uh, you just never know until you try. And, and I mean, I could have also tried some different images of just the, uh, the game on the table, maybe with some players around and that kind of thing. But I think it, it really goes to show that you really have to test things and try them out, um, and see what works. You don't know what's going to work until you try out a few different things and then you'll find out. And sometimes you'll be surprised at what works best. But yeah, quite often people just like to see those natural images. And I, I tend to use that a lot on my, my webpage and, elsewhere as well. And I think they, they resonate with people and that and social media when they see people sitting around playing the game or the actual game on the table, as opposed to just a very digital uh, kind of maybe, maybe a little colder kind of a feel uh, rather than something that's a little more personal. Yeah, I agree. I think that sounds wonderful. And I've noticed myself in some of our ads that often finding just some of the simple unboxing videos that uh, a designer sets up on their table, just to walk through what their game looks like, why they, made this game or why they're passionate about it uh, and taking time to show off some of the interesting little mechanics and mechanisms that make their game unique. I do think that that is something that individuals do gravitate to. It adds a sense of realness to it that is hard to, uh, hard to fake. Uh, it's easy to sometimes create something that's super glossy and nice. And I do think that has its place and it does a lot to help sell a project, but I think for a lot of individuals, when you're trying to weigh uh, as a consumer where you want to spend your dollars, having a con- a designer take the time to explain what makes their game unique and really kind of show off uh, the heart of the game really does a lot, I think, to convert people over to want to follow and back. Absolutely. Yeah, I think another reason behind it is that people are so used to seeing ads on Facebook and they almost have an aversion to them. And they're more likely to pause and stop at something that doesn't look like an ad, looks like a post from a Facebook group or from a friend. So they're more inclined to stop scrolling. It's like, oh, here's a friend posting. And you kind of can kind of almost trick people and saying, oh, here, here's the kind of looks like this organic post, but in fact, it's an ad. So I think that has something to do just with the psychology of people who are on Facebook scrolling on their feeds. When they see something that's a little less polished, then it certainly uh, will get them to stop and think. So we've talked yeah. about testing different ads between polished and not so polished but really you know one thing about mind curse it's got these really interesting components with these kind of concentric circles that you you twist around and it's got these really bright pieces and everything looks kind of fun and 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 cheerful i'm sure that helps as well so why why don't we talk a little bit about what makes a game have great table presence and was that something that you went into the game design process 
in mind it was a kind of more of a, an afterthought it's like oh okay now that we've got this game let's think about how we can make that the, have this really outstanding table presence or was that kind of baked in at the very beginning absolutely yeah so Whenever I start with a, a new design, I always start with, you know, the quick and dirty minimum viable prototype, uh, the quickest thing I can get to the table and test out just to see if it's if it's working, really. Um, uh, I, I just want to make sure if the mechanics are working, people are enjoying it, find out where the flaws are and, and try to make it better before I invest a lot of time and effort into making something look really good because things are going to change so much. The theme might change, the look of it might change and spend a lot of time doing something and then having to totally scrap it and redo it. Uh, but my, uh, my co-designer, Sylvain Plant, he takes a, a very different approach. Um, sometimes I'll, you know, show up at his place. He's like, Oh, uh, take a look at the, this game that I'm working on. And it looks like almost like a polished finished game on the table. And I'm like, Oh, how long have you been working on this? Oh, he's like, I just work. I just put it together this morning. And uh, so, I mean, he really takes the approach. He really loves crafting. He does, he doesn't really care so much if it doesn't work right at the gate and he has to change some things. He just loves that crafting aspect. He doesn't mind putting that time and effort into it. So. With Mayan Curse, how it started off, it was actually um, a concept that he had, and the the sliding slabs actually had letters on them. So he brought it to a, a game design night very early on, and it was just these letters, and you just slid them and kind of lined them up, um, almost kind of like a, a roulette, kind or not a roulette, um, uh, a, one of those uh, machines at the casino uh, that you're 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 playing the um... like black black gammon. Is that the one? Or, no. I don't know. I don't. I've never been to a casino. When you're playing the machines, basically, you're putting the coins in the machines and you're playing. As a slot and, machine. Uh, a slot machine. Yeah. 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 Slot machine. Sorry. And uh, you're kind of lining up, and you had like three lines, and you're trying to make like the words out of those. And it was a really interesting concept, um, but we didn't really know how it would be a fully fleshed out game, other than just you know lining up a few slabs, how it would really change, or if if it really had any kind of marketability. Uh, but he took that idea and he was like, there, there's something here. We all well, agreed. Yeah, there's something cool about this kind of sliding and matching up. And then uh, the next time I saw him, he came with this really cool prototype and it had these Mayan symbols on them. And you were an adventurer. You're like an Indiana Jones. You're running down here to try to get something from the top of this temple. And the temple was totally different. It was these steps leading up and it's changed a lot over time. But I could see right from that early stage. Wow. Like this thing, like people were coming over and looking, oh, what's this? You know, like you could tell right away it had table presence, people were interested in it, seeing people play and slide the, the slabs. And then it evolved over time as we were trying to figure out what uh, what it could be next. Um, fortunately, I was very interested in the game and I, I I showed a lot of interest in it and had some ideas. And he pulled me on board as a co-designer and we've been designing a bunch of games together ever since that time. Um, but he came up with a version of it that had these rotating concentric circles, like you said, this, this temple. So it, was, it changed things around. The mechanics were, were the same in that you had to use these symbols to cross, but instead of just, you know, sliding them back and forth, you're rotating and you're trying to do different things. So there was like some similarities there, but like a different part of the puzzle when you got there. Um, so definitely as we were working on this game and getting people's uh, feedback on it and seeing what their, what their impressions were, the table presence was definitely a big thing. And, you know, we've been working on this game for years, like during the pandemic, it really set, was set aside for a while, but it's something we definitely think about when we're designing all of our games now in one way or another, what can we do to make this stand out, to make it look different for people to walk by the table or see a picture of it or something and, and go, whoa, what, what's that? Like, that's, that's the first thing you got to get them to stop and look at it um, because it's a lot easier to get people's attention with a game like that than 
something that may look like a very dry euro with you know gray tones and just some cards and things like that. I mean, it might might be a great game, but it's a little harder to get people interested in playtesting it or demoing it. So there's definitely some some huge advantage to that. Not you know, let alone when you go to crowdfund the game and you're running ads and you got it up on the campaign page when people are seeing it and they're they're just like, oh, this looks really cool. And they want to just learn more and scroll down and, and learn more about the game. And was your theme uh, immediately tied to the mechanics that you wanted to implement uh, as you were designing? Or was that something that kind of came along later? Yeah, it actually came out pretty naturally because when he uh, when Sylvan had uh, come with that prototype with the sliding slabs and the Mayan symbols and everything, it felt right away like, ooh, like I feel like I'm like Indiana Jones or um, Laura Croft and I'm, I'm, I'm running across these things, trying to solve these puzzles and, and trying to get something to get out in time. It very much felt like that kind of adventure kind of a feel. Uh, so it, it kind of naturally came together. And, and that's a great thing. If you can really find a game where the mechanics and the theme really mesh together well, that really takes it even beyond table presence and really gets into the experience of the game. And if a player can really feel like they're that player, like they're actually doing that thing in the game uh, and they, they feel those, those tension points and they feel you know, all, all the things you want a player to feel as they're playing the game, then that just, you know, heightens the experience for the player and, and gives you a better chance of it, uh, you know, being a successful game. Yeah, I think you can certainly tap into even some nostalgia just with referencing some of those themes with Indiana Jones. I don't know if you guys ever saw Le- Legends of the Hidden Temple by Nickelodeon. It was like a little reality TV show, which I loved as a kid. <laughs> no, <I laughs> so that, that. Absolutely. <laughs> you have to look it up because it's, it's sort of like has this Mayan theme and these kids are like climbing and spinning things and it's, it's good fun. And then also Crash Bandicoot, of course, has like a, had a bit of a Mayan theme to it as well. So maybe before we dive into the kind of nitty gritty of maybe characteristics of what really maybe tips for people to when they're designing their games in terms of what makes a game have great table presence. Let's maybe just talk a little bit about games which do have great table presence or just games you can off the top of your head think of. So I don't know, Joe, do you have a a couple of games that you think, well, those games just have really good table presence and maybe go into some of the reasons why? For sure, yeah. Um, I actually thought of a a few before, before we got on to chat and um, a, f- a few that come to mind are the Dark Tower. It's got this gigantic tower in the middle of the table and it makes sounds and everything. They've revamped it and Restoration Games has, has brought it back to life. Um, Fireball Island is a big one for me. It's got the nostalgia factor because it's another game that they brought back um, from the 80s. And it's got this giant head that spits out marbles and knocks things flying. And uh, I mean, it just looks great on the table. You look at it and you're like, oh, that looks so cool. Um the Climbers is another one uh, that I remember seeing back at Origins where people are stacking these blocks and building uh, ladders and climbing up and uh, going way, way back to one of the first, you know, big mass market games, Mousetrap. Um, you know, you can mm-hmm. say what, what you will about it. Not not necessarily the greatest in terms of gameplay or anything like that, but you look at it and it's this crazy Rube Goldberg kind of machine contraption that you're trying to set off to catch this mouse. And it's got all these cool moving parts. So, uh, those are a few that come to mind just for something that um, I see on the table and I immediately think, oh, that's interesting or cool or, or, or what's that? But I'd love to hear uh, from you guys other other ideas of games that you think have a great table presence as well or that you've noticed. Yeah, I think for me, this would be speaking on recency. In fact, as recent as just two days ago, uh, I have been a big fan of uh, Cardboard Alchemy's projects at Flamecraft and then they launched Critter Kitchen uh, two days ago. Um, 
but I feel like the the table presence with those games there is uh, is definitely sort of a step above. I know they offer a deluxified versions with their games. Um, I'm always a big fan of games that include metal coins and things like that. It, those it is part of that tactile experience. But I, when there's a lot of clever thought played into uh, as the topic of the day goes into the table presence, you know the I know for Critter Kitchen. It, this this week, this soup tokens that you collect, one of the uh, additional components is an actual soup pot that the soup tokens sit in on the board. And those are easy things to overlook. I know that those do add up as expenses when it comes to producing your game. Um, but it does add a level of immersion that I do think makes you feel like you're a part of the game that you're playing. So for a game where you're chefs and you're cooking and you're collecting ingredients, being able to store things in a soup pot is uh, kind of one of those things that for me as a, a player and my background is in illustration. So any of those sort of artistic design type components uh, usually are what I'm looking for when I when I see a game uh, to kind of get sucked into, into playing that I don't want to necessarily just do something to score points. I want to feel like I'm a temple explorer. I want to feel like I'm a, a chef or a you know a Viking, whatever it may be. The whatever it may be. Yeah, some some games come to my mind would be Planet Unknown with its lazy Susan. That's quite a, a very unique and interesting kind of kind of takes center stage as well when when you play that game and seeing people twist that and turn it. I'm sure if you're walking past, you're like what's this? Another one is Portal Two, which is obviously a big IP, but because it has this very kind of strange essentially this laboratory that you're constantly destroying and rebuilding has a very odd looking shape and then it has these very iconic miniatures from the portal series such as the the turrets and the companion cube and these types of things i think they just look great on the table and they kind of maintain the aesthetics of the video games and actually one that's recently come out was actually a, i saw a post on facebook by david diaz of metal lab games um, he was a, a video creator for Kickstarters, and he worked on this project called Source. Well, it's it's it's, it's really a, it's a combination of two things. It's Source, and it's a game called Time Strike. Let me just show it for you guys here. <clears throat> and it's, it just has great uh, table presence because it's it's sort of these different blocks, almost like has some has a bit of like a Lego vibe to it, where you can craft and construct these different arenas for your different types of games so for you know your role-playing games or it, they've also got a gaming system that kind of goes over this but it's, i think it's just it's quite striking in terms of it's bright colors and it's kind of got this minecraft lego vibe and that's, that's certainly a striking i'm sure if someone was walking past they would certainly stop and look so so i don't from all the games that we've just spoken about i think one of the, the key things that, I, that kept on coming up in my mind was unique components having some type of component that's super unique, I think really gives it that ability to stand out on a table. Do you agree with that? Do you think there's anything else that kind of goes into a game having great table presence? Yeah, I think com components is definitely one big thing that you can look at, whether it's, um, you know, it's something on the board or the board itself or um, some, something just really cool. I mean, you, you mentioned... Uh, Planet Unknown, which is one of my favorite games with the Lazy Susan. And there was another game called Steam Up um, that was on Kickstarter, I think a year or two ago. And it has um, a rotating kind of a thing with uh, like buns and different 
different like food items and that kind of thing that you rotate around. Um, and then there's, there's other games that have really cool components too, like Wingspan, for example, it has this cool bird tower and then the, the little eggs and the eggs are in all these different colors. The colors don't matter at all, but it looks so cool having all these different colors on the table. So components are, are definitely one thing or the board itself, if you've got like some big board or a tower and that kind of thing. Um, but also art, um, and you know, there's, there's lots of great games, Wingspan being one of them that has great art. Um, deliverance as well, great art uh, along with the minis, um, and there's there's other games um, as as well that you know it, it it's it's not just the components, but if you have really striking art, you know a great looking game box, great looking art on the board, on the cards, that type of thing, that's also going to draw people's attention. So it's it's really about things that are please the eyes, whether it, whether it's components, whether it's the board, whether it's the art. Uh, something cool, something, even if it's something a little, little gimmicky or a little different than, you know, you normally see in a game, um, you know, anything that's going to be a little different than the norm that's going to make, you know, get people's attention. Yeah. And some of it doesn't necessarily have to be crazy elaborate. I'm even looking with what you're doing with uh, the Mayan curse, these massive dice, rotating dice blocks, uh, even just increasing the size of a component like that, a, a dice component, so many of us are used to seeing just your small little dice, getting to have these large, chunky dice uh, really can do a lot to to set it off and make something like, well, why are they so big? Or it, And it is neat to see where they do fit within the game. They, you know, they fit the size of the, the squares on the grid as they roll across the board. Um, so they do have a place mechanically uh, within your game. Um, but even just taking a component and sizing it up to four times the normal size can do a lot to to make someone stop and be like, oh, well, you know, this this looks really interesting. How did, how did these work? Um, so I think sometimes you can get by even with simple changes and create something that is really pleasing to look at or does provoke at least a desire to want to know more why are they done this way or why is this different than the way i've usually seen this component yeah and i think we kind of lucked into that because we were using uh like a a 32 millimeter by 32 millimeter uh, square base for all of the uh the stones and the uh the the pieces uh all the all the different basically spaces on the slabs. <clears throat> so we wanted the the boulders to to match that. And the boulders were actually something that we added kind of late in the game. We, we'd been changing and tinkering around with different puzzles and stuff and we wanted to add a, a tension and a reason why people had to really get in and out. And it, it just felt so thematic to have these boulders, you know, kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of style rolling back and you have to get out before them. And it just turned out that it just made sense to make them the same size as those squares because they need to tumble and fall into those spaces uh, evenly and, and you not be, you know, off center or, or something like that. And because of that, and because they're much larger than like the adventure meeples that we're using as well, they just look massive. And as they start rolling back, you just see players the first time that they play the game, when the first time that the, the boulder rolls back, they're like, oh my goodness. Like they're just like this feeling of like tension. It's like, sh should I be running back now? Like, um, that's kind of scary. You know, we got these boulders rolling back and they're going to block the entrance. So it really, um, added to that experience and, and feel of, of tension in the game. I know you mentioned deliverance as uh, an example. And I think I was just thinking about 
deliverance. And I know Andrew was quite intentional in developing this neoprene math that kind of matched the the boards, the, the arena essentially that you you play on, and that has this heaven um, section, which is I think it I think what makes that stand out is the contrast between the the background essentially the the board and then the the components on top of it. Which if you when you once you've painted your miniatures, they're going to stand out against that darker background. So I think that's what makes it's that contrast and in, in the colors that makes it stand out. I think colors is important in any kind of bright <laughs> that's eye-catching with contrast is going to certainly make the the games have uh, a presence that as you as you mentioned earlier joe a, rather like a kind of grayscale <laughs> uh, game with um just simple cards and then i think maybe one of the other things which is is important to consider as well is the number of players because i think crowds attract the crowd so if you have a game that has just two people sitting in front of a table, a game with eight people around the table is going to be far more impressive just to look at as a spectator outside looking in than a game with, with two people. So I think player count also lends to this idea of presence. And I think even when it comes to, as we talked about earlier about crafting ads, including people in those ads, not just having the game laid on the table looking, you know, prim and proper have and we've had ads with people have like had a snack bowl and like these drinks with you know half empty and there's kind of hands kind of peering into the the frame and i think all of that is part of this presence that, that we're talking about. how does it look at, on game night with all these people interacting with it and i think seeing people around the table is i think just as humans we just connect with other humans when we see see them having fun and interacting so i want to be part of that i want to join in as well Absolutely. And if you've got something that, you know, does, doesn't have, you know, miniatures or really cool art or something, there's, there's other ways to do it as well. Like if you have a party game, for example, like you're alluding to there with having a lot of people around, that can be uh, the presence. It can be like a lot of people having fun and laughing and having a good time, or even, you know, one component that, that's, that's really funny on the table. Maybe you got like a, a buzzer that makes a, a silly sound or something like that that you have to hit. Um, I played um, uh, a word game. You're, everybody's kind of doing their own thing, getting their words. And then the first person to, to get it done hits this little bell. And that was a really cool thing. Like at a, at a pro spiel, people would walk around and be like, why are, why are people ringing this bell? That kind of thing. Or I, I've seen some games where it was you're, uh, you've, everybody's got a cup and you're a lumberjack and you've got these different tokens and you're trying to throw the, the, the discs or, or, or these, these coins into like different cups. You're trying to get them into other people's cups and not your own cup and knock them out in the flying. So, I mean, there's, there, there's lots of different things you can uh, do with the game, even just with one silly component, like a little fish you yeah. throw around to other people or something like there's, you know, so, so many little things you can think about. Yeah. For me, I almost think that sort of one of the unspoken kind of, uh, again, coming at it from an artistic standpoint, uh, an element that adds a lot to it is, is, is depth and not necessarily depth in the sense that is your, is your game meaty, but how do you elevate it off of the table a little bit goes a long way in presenting your table presence. Um, again, I, I have your, I have your project up right now as well. And that's part of why I'd mentioned the boulders, it, the, the scale adds something to it. It does grab your eye and even the concentric circles could easily have been, you know, flat. Uh, they, they could still have rotated, but they could be far thinner. They could be almost poster board, uh, in thickness. Um, but you've got some, some weight to, uh, those rings of that concentric circle. It's enough to elevate it off the table. 
Um, I think of, of two other recent games I'd played, one thinking of word games, even something like just one uh, that did fairly well a few a couple of years ago where you're you're giving clues uh they very easily could have been on flat marker boards uh but elevating them up to those little tp shaped almost like name tag placards um does a lot for a simple concept game to make it look compelling when it's laid out on the table uh or even uh, i played fit to print uh this this past week where you're designing the layout of a newspaper and they have some clever components. And honestly, some of them are completely just superfluous. They don't necessarily mean anything, but you have a, you have a desk, you have a 3d desk that when you grab these little, little polyomino newspaper tiles, when you select it for your paper, it gets put on your desk. So it's ready to, to go out and be deployed to go to print. Um, that's something that easily could have been a flat player board and you just moved those tiles onto that board and that was the end of it. But instead you have these very fun looking three-dimensional old school reporter's desks that you're dropping newspaper ads on. Um, so I do think something as simple as how can I add a little depth to elevate it off of the table lends something to creating a product that is more eye-catching at first glance. Yeah. Come to think of it, um, I'm working on another prototype with uh, with my partner, Sylvain, as well, and it's called Pollen Nation, and it's about collecting um, and, and releasing bees and surrounding flowers. And it's it's basically a card game, and there's a board, and you're surrounding with, with tokens. And what we were discovering was um, on your turn, you do one of two things. You either take a card from the market or you release your, your insects. And most of the time you're taking cards. So your turns are very quick. You just take a card, but then once a card gets taken, everything slides along. And we we're finding that it's just constant slide, slide, slide. And we were thinking, is there any way we can do this a little bit better so players aren't ha having to constantly slide slide cards along? And uh, he came up with this this brilliant thing. It's, it's almost like... um. A, a, it stands up and you put all these tokens in it and they drop down. And then you only see in this little window, the three or four that are available. And then as you take one out, another one drops in. So it's just basically automated. It also stands up on the table. So you've got this like, um, you know, neat little like field design and you're dropping these tokens inside here. And the gameplay itself has not changed at all. It's just instead of cards as tokens, same same thing, but it's added this extra presence of of dropping these tokens and and whether a publisher you know picks this up and says yeah we're going to go ahead with this or you know we're just going to go with cards because it's you know cheaper or whatnot that's going to be you know their decision if this is a game that we wind up pitching but at least it it gives them something they can look at and say oh okay this looks neat I haven't seen kind of something like this on the table before so even if there's just little ways you can you can do things to change things. Uh, like we were talking about getting things to stand up more, have more presence, um, stand up from the table and not just be completely flat. It draws people's eyes in, uh, people walking by, people who are playing, everybody's just more attractive that way. Great. Yeah. So I think to kind of summarize this um, chapter of, of the podcast, we've, in terms of looking at what makes games have great table presence, we have unique components, unique components, color. Player count and then 
presence or you could say maybe 3D scale, uh, height, things that, which aren't really flat. So those are the kind of the characteristics. Unique components, color, player count, and scale. Is there anything else that comes to mind? I think that might cover everything. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> yeah, I think that that covers most of the things that I would consider. Um, I just wanted to to mention a couple other examples just for um, co- components slash tactile experience. And they'd be like a, a game like Azul, for example. They could have easily said, we're just going to use, um, you know, cardboard punch out pieces for the uh, little tiles that you place. But instead, they went to these nice um, big light uh, tiles and they, they make a nice sound when you put them down and, and they just kind of click together and that kind of thing. And the same goes for uh, Project L, uh, which is a great uh, polyomino mm-hmm. engine building Very game good. as well. These things look like almost like little like chiclets or, or like little plastic pieces on the table. And like the, the table presence of that and these cards, every single card is dual layered. You don't see that in games. Like sure, you may see like a, a player board or a main board that, that's dual layered, but every single one of these individual cards is dual layered and you put the pieces right in there and they sit in there and they're not going to go flying or anything. So it looks really cool when you, when you see p- people put these things in, they hold place. It just looks really nice. And that's just through upgrading some components, um, in a certain way and at the same time, making it more of a tactile experience because it's just that, that feel of picking up those pieces versus picking up cardboard as well. Yeah. When I was at the UK games expo, I, I always re- was reminded of the Vesuvius Media booth, and it was always packed full of people. And one of the reasons I think is because a lot of these concepts we've we've brought out was for they were only selling or advertising one game. It's a game called Castle Feud. And it's very simple. You kind of have you build these little castles, and then you kind of you know have these little catapults that flick at them. But was, there's was always people surrounding, it. and I think it's because it's, it's just so engaging and it's hitting a lot of these uh, topics that we've we've spoken about. But ultimately, and I think, you know, you mentioned this word earlier, Joe, ultimately all of these things, uh, unique components, color, player counts, you know, presence, tactile components, good art, all of, these things, all of these things work together to create an experience. So do you want to talk a little bit about the, the experience that you're trying to capture and how that can really, that really is the source of your entire marketing because people don't have a great experience with your product, with your game, well then not telling their friends, it's not growing. So maybe we want to talk a little bit about the the experience with keeping all of these concepts in mind. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, people ask the question often, uh, do you design starting with a mechanic or design starting with a theme? And I take a bit of a different approach and I think some other designers too, where I really look at the player experience and that can really inform a lot of different things. So I try to think about that all the way through from the start. What do I want players to feel? Is this a game where I want players to have a lot of tension? Do I want them to feel really smart because they've you know solved a puzzle or because they've been able to build an engine better than everybody else? Um, what is it that, that I want players to get out of this? And then just kind of keep that in my mind as I'm trying different mechanics, uh, trying to find the, the theme that matches because it's really about finding um, a, a theme that resonates with people and then mechanics that match to that. If you can really get those two things working together, that'll really help the experience. And then you want to just keep, keep that in mind. What's the experience? So for example, in Mind Curse, we really wanted to feel like an adventure. And as we were developing it more, we really wanted a feeling of tension because we really added some press your luck elements. So we tried a whole bunch of different things 
where we where it was, you know, just there was there was one thing at the top of the temple and everybody was fighting for it. And, you know, you could fight each other and, and it could go knocked flying and, and everything. Or maybe there was booby traps on the way back and you had to avoid them. And uh, through trying all these different things and different puzzles, uh, what we realized was players liked certain things about the game. They liked the sliding, the matching, uh, feeling, feeling clever about getting, getting, f- uh, really far. And then with the introduction of the boulders, that real sense of tension and having to make that decision. Am I, am I going to head back now or am I going to be a little greedy and try to get to the top of the temple and get those, you know, big 15 points at the top? Um, and that only came through through a, a lot of playtesting and trying different things. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's really listening to the players and also when you're playing your own game, feeling those experiences and seeing, does it really match to, to what I'm trying to do? Because we, when we introduce things like, um, booby traps and, um, all the slabs flipping over and some of the symbols were like knocked out because there was like pits there and that type of thing, it made it really hard for players to get out. So the, the trip in was, was fairly quick and seamless. And then getting out, it was, it was more of a slog. It, it didn't, it didn't feel tense. It didn't feel good. It, it, it felt trickier, but not in a good way. So we wanted um, to to remove those kind of obstacles that were in the way of people feeling that that great experience of feeling like they're in an adventure, it, like they were in that tension. So a lot of it is just stripping back uh, to the basics, stripping back to and, and realizing what what it is that is making your game good, what's making your players feel that way, and then removing the things that that get in the way of that. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the challenges with competitive games because you can often make one person feel really great and the other person feels lousy because they, they got uh, got destroyed or hammered and they can you can walk away with positive and, and good experiences. One thing you mentioned was playtesting and that to listen to people, well, how does your playtesting sort of look? Do you survey people afterwards? Do you kind of just silently observe with a notepad? Because uh, you said oh, people felt frustrated at this point or they had this we had this problem and how are you recording that how are you able to discern that was the experience people were encountering when playing your game part of it was just uh, observing and watching and seeing where people were 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 saying things or doing things sometimes they'd be like oh i I really want to be able to do this and they couldn't do the thing that they really wanted to do or oh this really slowed me down and then just doing things just like timing your game and if the game is really dragging on really long or it's taking, just noticing that it's taking really long to, to get to completion, you want to, you know, maximize the fun every turn. Was every turn fun? Were there things that weren't fun? So seeing little things like, um, players drawing, uh, tiles from the, or, or sacred stones from the bag and not being able to match them up or, oh, all those symbols are on the other side. I can't get to them. I can't do them. Well, then coming up with the idea of, Okay, you can always trade in two for any one of anything you want. So you can always get somewhere, no matter what. Um, so you can move some things along and you, oh, you can come up with this really cool long string of a path, uh, because you can trade these ones in. And, uh, so part of it was just observing, watching, um, timing, and then getting the feedback at the end of the game. What, you know, what were the things you liked best about the game? What are the things that, that frustrated you or you didn't like? So some, sometimes people would audibly say it when they're playing the game, like it's frustrating or whatnot. But sometimes, you know, you wait till the end and you ask them those questions and then hearing those things, especially when you hear it over and over. If you hear something once, one off after 50 play tests and nobody else has mentioned that, maybe it's just that one player feels that. But if you're hearing it from like one group after another group, 
or everybody's agreeing in the group, then you really have to take that uh, into consideration and think, okay, maybe this is a real concern. Let's, let's try it without this. Let's try something different here and just keep trying different things until you, you get that right feeling. And when, until players are like, Ooh, okay, let, let's play this again. Or when's it coming out? <laughs> you know, when can I buy this game? Then, you know, you know, you're, you're, you're really hitting uh, the nail on the head. Did yeah, you I ever, we... sorry, oh, go, ahead, ahead, <laughs> go ahead, John. Okay. I was, I, I always, it's almost better that you have people saying this is great or saying that, oh, there's a problem here. This needs to be fixed. Did you ever encounter people who were just simply indifferent that maybe there was blase, you know, um, I'm sure that's probably the most discouraging feedback because it's, it's not hitting, it's not something that you can necessarily improve because they're not telling you anything specifically, but there's also nothing here that's making you know that, oh, something here is really working. Did you ever, did you, is that a common response you get when playtesting? Yeah, it's not something you really look forward to either that or when somebody's like, oh, it was good. And, and you get like nothing to work on to make the game any better. Like you're, re you're really there trying to get the game better. Like, sure, if everybody's loving it and, and wanting to buy it, that's fantastic, but you're not going to get there right off the bat. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, occasionally you might have that experience where, you know, somebody doesn't have, doesn't have that much to say. I think, uh, in this game, Mind Curse in particular, I think people were finding those frustration points. Like when they got, you know, somebody just shoved them way off to the end and they were so far away and, and, uh, oh, like that, that was frustrating, you know, not being able to, to get out of that situation or whatnot. So, you know, looking at ways to, um, solve those problems so that people, you know, in, on your turn, you couldn't just, you know, do that to somebody else. It, it was more about advancing yourself rather than, uh, you know, screwing somebody else over, um, and giving them like a backpack that they could use a tool so they could get out of that. And they'd have to choose when to use that in a situation. Um, but generally didn't, didn't experience a lot of pe people kind of indifferent. They, they usually had um, a strong opinion one way or the other, uh, but certainly in, in other games, um, you know, you might get to the end and, and some people, I, I find more that some people are just a little quieter. Some people if will have very, very strong opinions. They'll say, oh, I really, really like this or, oh, I didn't like this or this is frustrating too long, took too long to get to my turn, that kind of thing. You'll hear those things and those people will be the most vocal. Um, so I think it's important to also like allow them to, to you know, express their opinions, um, but also reach out to the people who are a little more quiet, maybe a little more shy, um, and just say, well, what, do, what did you think about that? Or, or did you experience something like that as well? Or, or what did you, what did you feel about the game? So sometimes it's, it's just the person's a little more shy or, or somebody's just being very outspoken and the other people are just kind of sitting back and, and letting them kind of take control. So I think it's really important to just make sure that everybody at the table has a voice and listen to what they come up with. Cause some of those people who are like quiet or they might hit on something and other people are like, Oh yeah, I remember that, that point. And it's, it's something that you have to go back and maybe fix or, or make a little bit better. And then when you found when, when playtesting, as we talk about table presence, do you find that people are maybe a bit more positive or responsive when the game is, has maybe a, a more sophisticated prototype rather than when you're first starting off and everything's kind of abstract and kind of, you know, crudely drawn on cards. Does that impact people's Im Im impressions of the game? And do you think it impacts their, their feedback? Cause as we've talked about, it surely has to have some type of impact, right? Yeah. I, th I think it, it can go both ways actually. So uh, just having a game that really looks cool on the table will definitely attract people. When people are walking by, there'll be more people saying, Oh, I want to try that. Or can I, can I play this? Definitely. So it's, it's a good way to, to bring them in. But the flip side of that is you have to deliver. 
Uh, because if somebody sits down and they, they're playing a game that looks like, oh, this looks almost like a published game. It looks really nice. And they have a really bad experience. They're like, oh, like I, I was expecting something different out of this game. Sometimes it's like I was expecting to come down and, and think I was like Laura Croft or Indiana Jones running around. And I, I, I felt like, you know, where's Waldo? Like I was looking for something. I couldn't find it. Like if, if it doesn't deliver on, uh, on what, what the game looks like, then you definitely have some work to do. Um, so, so it can definitely go both ways. It can be, um, uh, definitely a boon to, to bring people in. But, uh, if, if you don't deliver on the promise of what that game looks like, then, uh, then, then you're going to have some people who, you know, didn't have as good of an experience because it just didn't match their expectations. That that's the huge thing is, is the expectation. So, um, if you come with a, a game that looks really, really nice too early, then you're setting the expectations a little too high. Whereas if you just have something written on cards or whatever, and people have done play testing before they know this is a very early stage, you know, we're going to be ripping this apart and you're going to be changing on the fly and everything. But if it's at a later stage, they're not expecting to come in and have the game, you know, be completely broken. So you gotta be careful with that as well. Yeah. So essentially when you're starting off, make sure that you don't really have any fancy art because that can influence people's perception. And if you're trying to make the game mechanically as sound as possible, you don't want things like art or components necessarily impacting their ability to critique the the game mechanics in a sense is it a well-rounded game but then as you said it becomes far more important as your game development process matures and you you get near the the end of that process you want to kind of um, use this to attract people and then lock them into the the gameplay yeah totally agree with that any uh because we probably can um we probably just start wrapping things up Jacob, do you have any closing thoughts on table presence uh, before I, I give the the floor to Joe to, to wrap up? Uh, nothing too profound, maybe, but uh, I do think when we're talking about some of the table presence, just based on some of the topics or the, the things that we just discussed, uh, especially as you're talking about some of the playtesting, I think it brings up a good point that the goal ultimately is to, with the table presence, is to kind of bring people to a sense of immersion within the game. You want them to to feel like they um, are what you say they are supposed to be as, as the player in your game. But if mechanically it's not sound, then you don't feel super great. Like if, if, if uh, you're supposed to be Indiana Jones and uh, you, you jump into the game and you're like, I, I'm completely incompetent. Like I can't, I can't do anything. I can't, like this would be the worst movie I would ever want to watch. Uh, so I, I do think it is one of those, a, a very good point is that while the ultimate goal, I think is to have the immersion of the table presence and to really draw people into the, to the game so that they are having fun. Uh, if it's not mechanically sound underneath, if the, if the, the heart of it is not working, then <laughs> To coin an old ter- term, you're basically polishing a turd. So it's uh, it's one of those things that it, it it may may look great, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so I think it is kind of a a good point of advice to make sure that as you're approaching it, that you are making sure that your product is mechanically sound uh, before you get too invested in fleshing out the table presence and the the look of it, so to speak. I know one thing that we, we, we didn't cover, which we probably should just before we wrap up, is the table itself. I'm sure the table has an impact on the, on the table presence. Uh, 
you know, I was talking to a client and they said that they, de- they designed their particular game to basically be able to, you could play it at a bar, you could set it up in a very small space and be able to play it. Well, that might be a very interesting uh, picture if you had two people at a bar playing a board game. Um, or is it this mass, does it have this, you know, huge scale and it just requires all this space? So I think the table itself and maybe the, the space uh, certainly impacts the, the table presence as well. So maybe to recap, just for people, if they want to jot this down, we talked about unique components, color, player count, presence or scale as in um, height, tact, uh, tact, tactile components and how they feel, good art, and then finally the table itself. So that all being said, in terms of thinking of all these things and producing an experience, Joe, how can people connect with you? How can people find out more of what you're doing? And uh, if they want to connect with you, how can they do that? Yeah. So if you're a board game designer or want to get into game design, you can check out boardgamedesigncourse.com. That's my site where I have all my uh, blogs, books, course information. If you're interested in checking out some of my games, you can go to crazylikeabox.com. (laughs) <laughs> that's a great name well Joe thank you so much for having us on I'm sure we will talk to you soon in the future as well awesome Sean and Jacob it's great talking to you thanks so much yeah thank <laughs> you well that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds for more resources articles and to listen to past podcasts please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com and if you have a crowdfunding question, we also have a page on our site where you can send a message directly to us. Please visit crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash question. And if your question is a great question, we may include it in a future podcast. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.